What would it be like to take your wife and kids to serve in one of the biggest humanitarian crises of our time? Today, you'll hear from Jeremy and Mariana, who have recently moved with their two young boys to the island of Lesbos, Greece, to serve refugees fleeing into Europe. You'll want to stick around for their amazing story. So let's get started on Episode 10 of the Mission Life Podcast. Hey friends, welcome to the Mission Life Podcast. I'm Jeff. Thank you for listening. If you're new to the show, well, first, welcome. And second, you can find show notes and previous episodes on my website at jeffreams.com. This podcast features stories of people putting their faith into action. I'm the missions pastor for Dunwoody Baptist Church, and in that role, I get to meet amazing people doing amazing things literally around the world. Many of the people I interview are supported by Dunwoody Baptist or people I come across in my work. Their stories and what they have learned can be great encouragement, but also teach us a few things about following Jesus. Today, you'll hear from Jeremy and Mariana, who have recently moved along with their two young boys to serve refugees on the island of Lesbos, Greece. We featured Jeremy last November in episode five, titled From the Front Lines of the Refugee Crisis. He had just returned from his first stint in Greece and gave us his initial impressions. Since then, he's made the arduous journey back and forth between Atlanta and Greece numerous times. First, a little background on Jeremy. He's a husband of one and a father of two. He's a carpenter by trade, so when he's home in Atlanta, he's busy with projects or managing his global humanitarian work. Jeremy is a great guy in a crisis. Plus, he does what he does because of Christ. And that's why Conscience International recruited him and sent him to work in places like Haiti, Guatemala, the Philippines, and now Greece. In Greece, Jeremy works at a major refugee camp called Moria. He has also started a community center, which we'll talk about more in a minute. The commute finally got to him and he decided to raise the funds needed to bring his family over to serve as well. I recently called them up to ask how their first few days had gone and how they were settling in. In this interview, you'll hear fascinating background into the lives of the refugees they are serving, stories of what God is doing in this crisis and what it looks like to serve as a family. Jeremy opens up by talking about a community center he's opened for refugees that allow them to come in off the street, take a shower, enjoy free snacks and tea, and let their kids play with toys. All the while, volunteers get to have meaningful conversations they couldn't otherwise have had in the camps. Back in March, I took a team over to serve with Jeremy, and we got to hang out in this community center. So many of the places that he's going to talk about in this interview, I I think back over the trip, and the volunteers got to serve in the very places that Jeremy's going to talk about. So let's get to the interview. Who are Um, the people that are coming in? Where are they from? uh, Well, a lot of them are families, uh, Syrian, Afghan, Kurd, uh, Kurdish, um, Iraqi. Iranian, because um, Mori was overcrowded, so they started bringing you know, families of what they call vulnerable cases, you know, families with sick children, uh, young children, uh, families with sick family, adult members, and put them into the camp in Karatepe, which has no fence. And they were given, some of them are allowed free reign of the island, and others are given limited access. I'm not real sure, still, knowing seems to know the formula for free reign or limited access, but they put about a little over a thousand people there. That's about what it can hold. 
shown by Caritas, the Catholic group, and they have about 600 vulnerable cases there. So those folks are able to leave uh, those two facilities and, and circulate around the island. And um, there's not a lot for them to do in the camp. So, you know, they like to get out and go to the town and they'll hang out in the center because it has Wi-Fi. They can do their laundry. It's safe. It's, you know, it's a warm, loving environment. And so they'll come in and, and stay, stay for hours. And now that no one is allowed to leave at, uh, the island for Athens, unlike before where you might get them one time if they bought their ferry ticket and while they were waiting on their ferry to Athens to leave, they would hang out at the community center. Well, now they're coming day after day after day after day. So our, our, our chance to minister to these folks is really increasing because you, you start to know them. Um, and, you know, you have that repeated contact with them. It all comes about after the relationship is built and the way they're treated by the volunteers. Um, you know, as long as I think it's safe to say not the most loving of religions, they don't really get that a lot where they're from. And then they come to a place where strangers walk around with open arms and they wait on them hand and foot, you know, so to speak. And, you know, they're generally concerned about them and, and love them and, and look out for them. And that, that's charming and it, it, it kind of puts them at, at ease. And some of the barriers that we see in the camp and some of the behaviors that we might see in the camps, just those walls are already torn down there in, in the community center. So, and, you know, and it's, it's an ongoing conversation. It's, you know, no one walks in and goes, hey, well, actually it did happen one time, but usually, no one usually walks in and goes, tell me more about Jesus, I want to become a Christian. That, you know, that just, that's not normally the course that it takes. Usually it's bits and pieces of conversations, you know, that are parts of much larger conversations over weeks that, that lead to the decisions. Mm. And not just anyone, you know, one thing you can't just look at one thing and say that's that's what's doing it. It's just a combination of the witness and the lifestyle and, and the way that the um, the volunteers treat uh, the refugees when they come in. So, what have you gone there to do specifically? I'm pretty much been my time in Moria, which is the main um, detention center, it's the registration center. It is where you go when you're picked up. Uh, on your boat when you're crossing the Aegean. Now they rarely land on the island. They're usually interdicted by the Coast Guard and then brought down to Moria. And so I uh, work for Consumers International, but I've been loaned out to a group called Euro Relief. It's a Greek NGO. And I basically am in charge of the, the day-to-day running of the camp, um, other than the registration and the asylum that's handled by the Greek authorities and Frontex the uh, European Border Police and the group Poliasa, which are uh, the, the European Asylum Support Office. Uh, they handle that part, and then we pretty much handle the rest. So we we assign shelter, we uh, help with the food distribution, uh, we distribute clothing and uh, you know hygiene and, and kits and blankets and, and that sort of thing, shoes. Um, we run a tea tent where they can get hot chai um, we solve disputes and negotiate you know, settlements to all the issues that, that come up and we provide a shoulder to cry on and, and some love and some hope to people who are in a real dark spot right now because a lot of these folks you know, we, uh, the first round of Yazidis uh, have just started to get their deportation orders back to Turkey um, so it's a real raw deal they're getting 
we see them day in and day out. They're not allowed to leave. Um, the majority of them, this is prison. They are under arrest. So we provide for all their physical needs, uh, and we try to provide their spiritual needs where we can. You know, we, we manage even the plumbing facilities and the electrical facilities. Um, I'm, I'm in charge of maintaining and, and keeping up to date and making infrastructure improvements so we can try to get people out of tents and into more suitable structures. So, um, so it's, a, it's busy days. Uh, we run a 24-hour shift. We've got about 150 volunteers on the island at any one time. And, uh, you know, on today I think we had, um, let's see, there he is. We'll have about 125 volunteers go through the camp today on the free shift. We've, we've actually started doing English lessons, volleyball, uh, anything that kind of keeps them busy. I'm trying to work out a deal with Save the Children, who still are kind of working with the, the kids um, to do more like structured school classes like math and maybe art classes and things like that to give these kids something to do. So, and, and for one, just because, you know, they need some structure to their lives. And, and two, they're... You know, these are lost years of schooling. For some of them, you know, they haven't had access to school for years. And, you know, there comes a point where you just don't recover from that. And so we want to try to start, you know, in our own little way, at least ministering to them that way, by providing some sort of more formal education, in, in our, in, you know, at least in math, because that's pretty universal. Because we have such a diverse mix of people in the camp that it would be difficult to teach much else but math. Through some of the efforts of, of, of volunteers, and I'm taking no, none of the credit for this, but through the efforts of some of the early volunteers, we've had, to my knowledge, since uh, since the end of March, so through the month of April, we've had at least 17 people in the camp have, have made decisions to become Christians, and uh, I think at least 13 of them have been baptized. We just had... Um, an 11 person baptismal last night outside of the camp uh, quite a few Pakistanis some Afghans uh, one volunteer actually and um, a couple of people I think one Syrian one that I'm not sure but they all came from a Muslim background and that, that happened through just the daily interaction with the volunteers who are just modeling the Bible uh, in their behavior and their concern and care they show to these people. It's a harsh environment in the camp. There's no two ways about it. Um, it sanitation is not what it could be. The food, you know, it's, you stand in line for two hours for breakfast, two hours for lunch, two hours for dinner. It's hot. It's dusty. Uh, there's a lot of tension between the different, different countries and ethnic groups and, and, and branches of Islam. And, you know, and so it's not a super nice place. And so, um, so we're kind of at calm in the storm for them. You know, a lot of them have been on the run from their countries for some time. And this is as stable as they've been for a while. Um, so we've been just, you know, a lot of time just talking with people and sitting with people and seeing where they're at and seeing how we can help them and how we can minister to them. And just, you know, I was just being their friends and caring about them. So we do, we do a lot of that. What's the reaction uh, when people come to faith in the camp? Well, that's a very good question. I, I can't give you just a blanket answer because some people will be excited for them. Some people, I think a lot of people are just indifferent, and, and some people are, are resentful of it. 
So tell us about the organizations that you're working with. Yeah, all right. So I, you know, obviously, even though I work for Conscience International, but um, Euro Relief it's a Greek yeah, nonprofit, and they are connected to Homeless Ministries, which is a you know ministry in Greek. Run, you know, started in Greece, run by Greeks for Greeks, um, and so Euro Relief is kind of their the branch of. of that does a lot of their disaster response and, and aid. Uh, so we work with groups, BIWAM, um, Youth of the Mission. Uh, we do Adventures in Mission. They send their World Race teams, and also they have like adult teams that they send. Uh, Crisis Response International, uh, Greater Europe Mission, Campus Crusade for Christ is supposed to send some, they've got some teams lined up for the summer. So it's a, it's a big group of folks. Uh, quite a few different Christian organizations working together under the Euro Relief umbrella. So what we really bring to the table is um, leadership. We have some, we have a small staff, but we have an experienced staff. Euro Relief has a very large volunteer base, but they're primarily all in their early 20s, sometimes, you know, just out of high school even. And while they have a lot of enthusiasm, they don't have really any experience or idea what they're doing. So we are really providing that leader that that leadership and that vision and putting the structure to the running of the camp uh, or camps because we also run a, a small like a transit center but we haven't had refugees there in like a month so because the coast guard's picking them all up that camp's almost shut down but we provide that that leadership that they're missing and so my you know my job in particular is just to i give this structure so that it can run as efficiently as possible uh because it, it's, it provides a more equitable distribution of, of, of the um, assets we have in the camp, be it food or clothing, uh, hygiene, shelter. Uh, but it also allows our volunteers to maximize their time interacting with the refugees and not spending their time doing tasks that are not refugee-oriented. So you know, I, I bring some structure to it, and then you know, I try to give them everything they need to be successful in both the running of the camp and in the um, the ministering directly to the refugees, and so um, so that's my primary role. I'm basically I'm the site coordinator for your release, which, and since we are the only group actively involved in managing the camp, um, after everyone else pulled out after the New Deal between EU and Turkey took place on the 21st of March, so I'm I'm the de facto manager for the the whole camp. About how many uh, refugees are in the camp that you're working in? We're probably down to, it's it's a moving target uh, because every day they move a few people to one of the um, vulnerable camps, but they're pretty much full. Probably around 3,000 right now and we have in space that's really designed for maybe 1,800. Um, but, you know, the thing is, a few leave. We've had three rounds of deportations. All told, they've probably deported about, about 220 people maybe from Moria. Today that we got, um, we probably had 50 new arrivals today that were processed and released into the camp. So it's kind of a, like I say, it's kind of a moving target. But we're we're right around 3,000 people right now. They're still coming. Uh, we probably average a boat every day. Maybe not. Maybe boat every six days. You know, one, but maybe you know, six out of the seven days. And again, the Coast Guard is typically picking them up. They're not really reaching the shore um, because there's so few of them. So they'll get picked up by the Coast Guard, which is a safer deal for them. These are not soaking wet. And then the Coast Guard brings them to port where they're put on a bus and 
and then while they're being while they're waiting to be processed and registered and you know decide if they want to log their an asylum claim or not and then when they get released into the camp we've already kind of laid the groundwork called them ready to so they'll come to us and we will assign them shelter either in existing what we call RHUs or we'll you know when those are full which they typically are we have to put them in tents and find places for their tents to go and so we're we're busting at the seams right now so we're, we're hoping that to get a little relief from that but it doesn't look like it's going to happen because people are still coming so you took your family over there uh what's been the reaction uh to you taking your wife and kids over Neighborhood, and we're pretty excited about it. So, 
So, Jeremy, what do your boys think about Greece so far? Uh, they really like it. Um, you know, Samuel, he's a more adventurous eater than Vance, but he loves Greek salad. So every time we go out to eat, he's, which has been in pretty much every meal right now, just because the grocery stores are closed because of the holidays. So we just had to eat at restaurants. And uh, he always wants to get a Greek salad. <laughs> and they, they, they had developed an affinity for certain things that I would bring home from all my trips over here, like a, paprika flavored ruffles that have these really thick um, ridges to them and uh, lemonade flavored Fanta and some other things. So, But we the hotel we're staying at is real close to the water so they can they'll walk down and skip rocks on the bay and so they're having a good time so far. But, you know, they're almost 8 and 10 so they're still processing everything and um, I think Marion is having more fun than they are. So Jeremy, here's kind of a big picture question. Why are you doing this? What's your sense of calling that has led you to bring your wife and your two young boys over to serve with you? Yeah, you know, I don't think I've shared this before. I feel like the, the call that God has in my life is what I do and kind of what I do within that is kind of a business decision and whether I do it here or there or the other. But when you come you come to the camp and you do what I do, um, you know, a lot of things run through my mind, you know, I'm coming over here and, you know, you we are, I am helping the poor, I'm helping the needy. Um, I'm helping my enemy only once I meet these people. Most of them really aren't my enemy. They're just like you and me. We, we may worship a different God, but uh, you know, they still want the same things for their family that I want for my family. Um, and some of these people I will miss greatly when they move on. I've, I've, you know, over the last month's time, I've gotten, you know, I see them every day, interact with them every day. We've got to be very close. And, I, you know, part of the family is I need to be here full time. This this is not a drop-in leadership role. This is not a casual leadership role. Um, what it takes to run the camp and to run these volunteers and make sure that the camp is run, that people are being ministered to, uh, it's a 24-hour day job, really. It's a 30-hour day job. So I can't do that from Atlanta. I have to do it here. I want my kids to see that because we've always tried to raise the boys very intentionally about helping others and, and sharing Christ with others. Um, and it's a chance for us to do a little bit of ministry together as a family because you know my primary role is in Moria. We'll be able to go to the community center. I took them over there yesterday. And so they got to meet some a bunch of Pakistanis uh, men were there and some Americans, but we had several Syrian families, so Marion got to meet them and talk with them for a while. Uh, the boys were a little overwhelmed, <laughs> so they didn't really uh, interact much with, with children there, but as they see that a few times, they'll get used to it. Um, I forget how I, how not normal that situation is, because that just seems so normal to me now. Um, but as that goes, we'll be able to pull some shifts in the family center, uh, in the community center, or one of them, and uh We'll take it from there, but you know, part of it's just—I uh, just feel like at this point in time, God has given me these people to protect and protect our volunteers, and you know, help our volunteers grow a little bit spiritually, and help our volunteers uh, uh, provide those opportunities for those those God moments to happen between the volunteers and the refugees. Um, that's that's what I want to do, you know. And like I say, seventeen doesn't sound like a huge number when you talk about the, probably the potentially four to 5,000 that have passed through the camp or are still in the camp since I got there, you know, at the end of March. But, you know, there is just a huge, huge potential 
to really, in a meaningful way, engage Muslims and see them come to Christ in, in numbers that just don't would not happen in any other way other than this crisis. So, um, so I feel like that's my role, and because I normally wouldn't say I think God has put me here for this exact specific purpose, because I would normally say that I feel like God has called me to be to do disaster relief or to do you know that kind of ministry, but. What I do within it is just kind of a business. But I really feel this time, at this point in time that he has given me these people and these volunteers in this camp to protect and to minister to. So how can we back here be supportive of you and, and what your family's doing? Now, you know, obviously it just takes a large amount of prayer cover. Um, we had a massive riot on Tuesday. I was still in the U.S., but it was a massive riot. The police evacuated themselves first. <laughs> hey, police, thanks for that. You know what happened? The refugees formed a wall around the volunteers and walked them out in mass to the gates. And then they went back and, yeah, around our volunteers, all the refugees, they took it upon themselves. Uh, you know, I wasn't there, but, you know, all the refugees and all the volunteers have just told me a story over and over. So basically there was about 200 refugees that would form circles around groups of our volunteers and walk them through the chaos and out to one of the gates. And then they went back and they stood guard over the clothing and the tent and the non-food items tent and the tea tent and our information, our you know, our housing where we have all our tools and we distribute the housing, we have the tents, and then where the Save the Children has the child safe area, they, they guarded that, you know, they linked arms and refused to let the guys that were rioting to, to mess with that. And so it was really powerful and is a testament to how much love and that our volunteers, that our staff is pouring into these people and the respect that that has garnered and the effects that it's having. Because, you know, that's not natural for people to put themselves, especially in that position, to put themselves on the line and then to face some danger to help people who we are in effect their jailers because we are aiding the police in a prison. And so uh, to, to get that kind of respect and response out of them is, is it's, it's really amazing, um, and, it, and again, it just it shows what an effect that, that we're having as Christians in our daily life and in our interactions with them. And there's a lot of different versions of how it started, but the and we got word about it the day before that there was going to be a protest. So they always warn us when they when they know something's coming. The refugees will always stop by and warn us. Um, and so we knew there was going to be a protest because the Greek minister of immigration was in camp. So I believe they started throwing some water bottles in his general direction. Now, he, keep in mind, he's behind a 12-foot-tall fence, a double fence with razor on top, so I doubt any of the bottles were coming anywhere near him, but the police uh, maybe overreacted a bit and used tear gas. And then there were allegations that the police, at the same point in time, beat uh, an unaccompanied minor. They're held in a separate block for their own protection because people exploit them, they try to traffic them, and they cannot be deported. So if you can't find their families, if you can't reunite them with their families, they're basically orphans under international law. So you have to raise them until they're of age to either move on somewhere else or, or then be deported. I really don't know what's going to happen to them once they reach 18. But um, that sparked a, a riot at the same time, and they broke through the, the chain link fence that surrounded their compound. And then um, the, the, the people are, they don't know what's happening to them. Uh, when they are picked up, they are given a sheet of paper and 
have been arrested within 24 hours, it is your right in the law that you appear before a magistrate to have a hearing to decide if, you know, you're going to be released or, or remain in custody and go to trial, right? Because it's very similar to what we have in the U.S. That was, in many cases, 30 days ago or more. So the law is not being followed. No information is passing. The um, And there's no legal representation provided. So there's just a lot of frustration I think hit a boiling point on, on Tuesday. So in the midst of all that, you, you have hundreds of refugees, you know, uniting around the volunteers and walking them out to safety. And I don't know that they were ever really in a lot of danger, but, but maybe 20 to 30 refugees were injured and had to be taken out to receive medical treatment um, once the rock throwing started. They don't direct any of their anger or hostility towards us at all. It's all directed toward the police and the Greek government and the the European the European Union government. Um, so yeah, we no, we we've not, never been afraid. And I really I really don't think many of our volunteers ever have been. I mean we we have a lot of young kids, you know, twenties, early twenties that I could see where some of them might have been scared at, at different moments, but you know, the refugees have always looked out for us, you know, and we, we do feel like we're there with a higher purpose and God is kinda keeping his hand on things and it has been remarkably peaceful since that happened. So it's a much better spirit in the camp right now. Um, but, you know, obviously prayer for Dunwoody folks would be paramount because it takes I say it takes a lot of work and logistics to keep it going. It takes a lot of air cover for it to have the success that it's having with the six conversions that we've seen and then all the other conversations that have happened that, you know, we may never see where that leads. But, you know, it's, it's, it's been fruit. It's, it's been sown. Um, and then, you know, we're always, you know, we're constantly looking for volunteers. So if anyone around Dunwoody has got a spare week or if it's, you know, you want to come and spend your summer uh, volunteering in the camps, uh, we, we certainly can use that. Um, and at the community center. And then, you know, there's obviously financial and, and, and physical resources that are, you know, we're constantly eating like that. Razors, disposable razors. You, know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that you'd ever be in a situation where you'd need to provide three thousand razors a couple times a week. But that—that's kind of what happens. These guys need to shave, and um, they can't go out my razors. Uh, you know, things like towels for the community center. I know Denwoody brought some with them, but we are now starting to get so many people taking a shower during the day that it's, with the number of towels they have, they can't come close to really keeping up. Um, you know, there's big things like shelter, like more RHUs, then there's the little things like um, the razor and sunscreen. A bottle of sunscreen will run you about 17 euros here. You can buy the same bottle, bigger, in Walmart in an off-brand for, you know, four bucks. Uh, so there's things like that, and the sun is hot, and, you know, even though they're Arabs and they're coming, a lot of them are coming from hot countries, they still need the sunscreen. But we're doing English classes, and, you know, just even so that they can give notebooks and pens to, to the refugees and, you know, uh, just, there's just so much stuff that goes into writing this. And, you know, we, your release was never set at, never set out to be the camp managers because there's a, that's a large outlay of money because you're responsible for the infrastructure now that the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees has pulled out in protest of it becoming a detention center. 
the Danish Refugee Committee was the other big player there, and they have pulled out, Oxfam has pulled out. So everyone that was doing a lot of the infrastructure with the deep pockets, they're gone. So it's it fallen upon us to do that. And so, uh, you know, Content International has uh, spent some money in, in putting in water points so they can get their own water and we can stop handing out reusable water, disposable water bottles um, and, and some other infrastructure improvements. And you know, your release is they're spending you know, tons of money on tea and this, that, and the other. And, and then sometimes we just, as volunteers, we just pass the hat around and everybody throws in a couple of bucks, a couple of euros, and we, we buy what we need. Um, so there's, there's lots of things there. It's got to be good to be there with your family, though. I know you got tired of traveling. Yeah, uh, that, that travel back and forth is crazy. And, you know, Mariano's having to be both parents. You know, she's basically a single parent. When I, was, when I was getting to her, I was traveling a lot. Um, the boys need me around, and so it's good to have them all here. And uh, it'll also give me a little bit of a semblance of balance because I was pulling 20-hour days. And, you know, sometimes I'd show up at 8 in the morning and I'd leave until midnight the next night. I'd spend a couple hours on the cotton camp somewhere. Um, but when I first got there, it was so chaotic. Um, so what had happened was it was pretty well, fairly well organized. I mean, it was never greatly organized. There's a lot of other groups in there doing the management of the camp. So your relief was just doing their part. Was when it came on the 21st and the big NGOs pulled out, the police kicked all the other NGOs out but your relief. And, but they only allowed your relief to work in the tea tent and the clothing tent, and they took over the housing the police did. And after about three days, they realized, you know, we're police, not landlords, so to speak. So we went out of the housing business. And so they handed that back over to your relief. And um, so when I got there, there was just a lot of things in transition and flux. So we've managed to put some structure to some things procedures in so it's, it's it'll be easier now to uh you know just work a normal day and go home because it, it it is a psychologically emotionally draining experience for most people that are working there it is intense it is you know there you're surrounded by need you can't hope to meet and you're surrounded by people that you you know i'm i tend to have the gift i don't know if gift is the right word but i tend to just view this them as a commodity. You know, I've got 3,000 X number of people that need housing, X number of people need this. And, um, but the, when I do stop and, and interact with them on more of an individual level, you know, you, you get their stories and you, you understand where they come from and what they, uh, what's happened to them. And some of the volunteers, that's all they get, you know. And, and so I try to limit them to eight hours a day and make sure they're getting off day. And we're doing some debriefings and counseling along the way to, you know, signs of depression and things like that. So it's good having a family here. Well, and, and Greece isn't so bad at, either. What's your favorite part about living in Greece? Uh, you know, that's hard to say. The food is amazing. It is, I think as of all the countries that I've been to, um, Greece has knocked, you know, probably Japan off the top spot in my favorite food. Uh, it's beautiful scenery. The people are just, you know, the, the Greek people do not get enough credit for their part in this crisis. I mean, they've been dealing with refugees since they became, since 1918 or whatever it was, that Lesbos uh, was liberated from the Turks. And, you know, they've been in an economic meltdown since about 2008, yet they have, it wasn't until last year that the international community really focused in on, on the Greek islands. So they were all alone beforehand. And, you know, they were getting the job done. They were doing what they could. We'll still have, People show up at the camp with 
little bit of clothes, a little bit of food, whatever they can afford or whatever they've got, you know, to donate for the refugees. So it, it's hard to pick one thing uh, that I like the most about Greece. Um, and, and, uh, you know, it's also supposed to be a beautiful island. It's kind of juxtaposed, the, the ugliness, the harshness of, of, of the refugee situation. And, I mean, really, this is, this is potentially the biggest humanitarian crisis we've faced since, you know, maybe World War II. You know, when you're talking almost half of a country has fled. Mm. You know, you've got two million Syrians living in Jordan. You've got a million plus, I think, living in Turkey. You've got a couple hundred thousand that made it into Europe. You know, it, it, they're in Lebanon. They're just, they're everywhere. Uh, and then when you combine that with the Kurds from Iraq, the, the, the Yazidis from Iraq, uh, and then the Iraqis are having to flee the continued violence. That's yeah, just, that, 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 that's a staggering number of people who've been forced to flee their home. And then you have, um, you know, uh, what, what we're calling economic migrants, you know, the, the Pakistanis, the Northern Africans, the Bangladeshis. Uh, I've got about 40 people in camp right now from the Dominican Republic of all places. Um, uh, so you've got a large other group of migrants who are, you know, I'm sure their situations aren't great, but they're not poor refugees, but they're mixed into this. And so now that, that, that double numbers. So this is a massive crisis we've got going on. Um, and it's one that I, I really wish more churches were taking than what he's approaching and getting involved in it. I mean, the churches could raise the banner high here. Uh, this is an unprecedented opportunity, and uh, you know I, I really wish more churches would step up to the plate and say, you know what, we want to be involved in this, and we want to we want to minister these, these people, and we want to show them the love of Christ, you know, and, and not just you know we we throw that around a lot in church, the love of Christ. But you know, I don't know that I really know how to to, to show that apart from Christ, and, and so the only way that that really happens is when I'm actually doing something, you know, when I'm sitting at home in my lazy chair. Uh, that, that love of Christ doesn't really manifest itself anywhere. Um, um, yeah, as one guy put it, um, you only put your family in a boat when the sea is safer than land. So if you think about that, that 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 you know, I, that's a question I get a lot. Why do they do this? Why do they come on the boat? Why, you know, it's their only option. They feel like it's the only option they have left. So the land is less safe than the water in those little rubber boats. So that, that maybe will help some people understand what they're going through, what their mentality is, what their thought process is. Now, another question I get a lot about, that you've asked, but I'm just going to throw this out there, is about, you know, well, why do these men come without their families? And in many cases, the families are safer than the men in the country they're coming from because a lot of the Syrians have been displaced from war, but a lot of the men will be conscripted by either the government forces, the rebel forces, the other rebel forces, the third group of rebel forces, by Daesh, ISIS, uh, or by Al-Qaeda. So, you know, it's kind of like the old, um, being Shanghai, you know, you're, you're out in San Francisco somewhere, next thing you know, you wake up on a boat and you're, you're stuck on the crew for a year while it goes to China. So that's kind of what would happen to them. I mean, they literally are, you, they come, they grab you, they give you a uniform and a rifle, and if you're lucky, maybe you watch like full metal jacket or something for training, and then off you go to the front lines. So there's, uh, so some of those guys are fleeing that, and some of the other guys 
they get their families to a, a safer spot in Syria, and then they make the journey alone because it is a dangerous journey, especially for women. We can't imagine what they've been through. Well, Jeremy, you've answered a lot of questions for us, and I, I think you've really cleared up some misperceptions I know I've had and others might have had, too, about this about this crisis. Um, if your wife's around, though, let me talk to her, because I'm sure a lot of people would love to hear her take on this as a mom and a wife. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Mariana. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Um, so what's it like? I mean, you, you'd never been before, so what's it like the first few days? Oh, wow. Well, um, we got here, and I just couldn't believe how beautiful it was. I mean, I immediately fell in love with the place, the people, the food, the just the beauty of the island itself. I mean, you look at the water, you don't even know how to describe the color. It's just the most amazing color you've ever seen. And um, I don't know, just everything about it just um, blows my mind. You know, we've only been here a few days, but I'm already in love with this place. And <laughs> anyway, we're not suffering. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. We... Um, I mean, the time difference makes it difficult to stay in touch with people. Like, it's almost midnight here, but, um, our, you know, our families are finally understanding how I felt all these months when Gary was leaving me, and, and I had a hard time communicating with him. But, um, but you know, we're still a little tired, but and we're still kind of in the honeymoon phase, so we'll um, get back with you on how everything is. We move into the house. We've been able to rest while, um, while we get through the jet lag, and... The kids have been tired, but they're troopers. Um, you know, they fall asleep in odd places and yeah. ask to go to bed, which blows my mind. But um, but they've been amazing, and Samuel loves the food, and Vance is the, quite the opposite. But, um, but they, yeah, they're happy to be here with their daddy. And they, um, you know, it's a little new to them, and going in a refugee center was a little bit overwhelming, but everything else has been, you know, very easy. Um no complaints. So we will, hopefully, prayerfully, we'll move into the house on Friday and so we can start um, cooking on our own. And we need to get a washing machine, so we're going to have to do that. And um, I'm sure some other people wonder, as a mom, taking your kids over there, what what was going through your mind? Uh, any, you know, you know, what was that like for you as a mom, taking your kids over there, and especially going to do what you're doing? Well, quite frankly... Um, I had peace about it, and I just, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I've never been afraid to bring them here. Um, I think I feel safer here than I did at home. I don't, I told my parents, I'm like, don't wake up. My mom's been waking up in the night concerned about us. I said, we ought to be doing that for you. <laughs> you have no reason to be concerned. Honestly, it is very safe here. Now, they're not going to go into Moria because you have to be 18 to enter Moria. So it's a little... I'm not taking them in a refugee camp, um, but they see refugees on the streets, and they've watched us talk to them, and um, and they will be at the community center with us. Um, honestly, yeah, I, I didn't feel afraid at all. We're very thankful to Dunwoody and to family and friends that helped us get here well, I know I know great things are going to come of it, and uh, we're right there with you as best we can be, and uh, be praying for you, and reading your blog, and you know, hopefully sending some people over, and and doing whatever we can while this window is 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 open, and uh, we just want you to know we love you, and, and are praying for you. So. 
can follow the Holloman's adventures on their blog at hollamanfamily.com. Mariana posts stories and photos there regularly. I know they appreciate your prayers and any encouraging words you might post to their blog. Also check out the organizations they serve with at eurorelief.net or conscienceinternational.org. That's it for this episode of the Mission Life Podcast. If you found this conversation helpful, would you share it with someone you know? Post it on your Facebook page. Send the link jeffreams.com slash 10 to a friend who might have questions about refugees or how to help. Now, in honor of the Greek people who have been hosting refugees and doing what they can do to help them, let's go out with a little of the Greek national anthem. Thanks for listening. <laughs>